Welcome, art lovers, to the SCHS Visual Art Podcast, where we are equipping creative minds to be artists of many styles and disciplines. We feature guest artist talks and other fun things to guide, inspire, and inform the work you make or want to make. I'm Tucker Webb, but a lot of you listening probably know me as Mr. Webb. Let's check it out. All right, guys, welcome to episode 15 of the SCHS Visual Art Podcast. Today, our guest is Steve Jaworski. Steve is an animator and compositor living in San Francisco. He currently works for Sony PlayStation, and he'll kind of explain what he does with them in our chat, but he has worked on all sorts of recognizable projects. Commercials and TV shows, movies and video games. Some examples are this thing called The Avengers... Shark Boy and Lava Girl, Saturday Night Live, Pirates of the Caribbean, and a lot more. This was a really cool conversation. It was something that we knew little about, and Steve was generous enough to break down the process for us and show us how he adds visual effects to movie scenes using separate references and show how they're pieced together seamlessly. This chat was recorded live with one of our advanced art classes, so of course you'll hear some students asking some great questions throughout our talk. Now, let's get to our chat with Steve. So where are you right now? Where, where do you call home? So I'm here in Northern California, uh, in the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area, and we're um, we're we're uh, if you if you know that area, we're just, I live sort of near the airport. So every now and then you'll hear a plane go over. But uh, yeah, um, uh, my I work now for uh, Sony PlayStation, and the headquarters are uh, right here in the Bay Area, uh, just south of where I live, and um, and this is about 1,200 people working. You know, we worked on a campus um, with a whole bunch of aspects of uh, of the PlayStation marketing and, and development. Awesome. Um, well, Steve, do you want to just kind of introduce yourself and specifically what you do for us? Sure. Yeah, and I th- uh, thanks again for uh, having me uh, today. And uh, thank you for being here. We're excited sure. to have. Yeah. Yeah. So um, currently, what I do. Uh, is that I, I work at PlayStation uh, in their marketing department uh, that creates a lot of videos for um, uh, a lot of what you see on YouTube, a lot of promotions of new products, a lot of um, uh, the, the big reveal of the PlayStation 5 uh, I was involved in. And what I do on a day-to-day basis is supervise a team uh, that grows any, anywhere from a small team of two people to uh, a larger team of um, about eight people depending on the size of the project. And my day-to-day work is kind of making sure that everybody's following uh, the right procedure, nobody's cutting corners, and that we're getting um, like really high resolution uh, video uh, computer graphics out to our editorial team who then cuts it together and puts it on YouTube. Um, and a lot of what that what that means is like supervising other artists who are, are, are all very, very good at what they do is often just kind of um, helping them get over fatigue. Uh, so they start to miss little mistakes that they've made uh, as they get close to finishing the project. And I have to like 
check all their work and look at it, you know, zoom in and, and check things. Um, and at the same time, I'm involved in some some of the design work and some of the the project planning uh, and and what happens first and who's dependent on who. And, and so there's a lot of management stuff that I do on a day-to-day -day basis. But this has evolved. Uh, when I first started at PlayStation, uh, I started as a, an artist. Uh, they, my title is called a compositor. I think that's historically what I've done most of my career. And that generally means that you're taking lots of elements that come from different places and layering them together like you would in Photoshop or, um, you know, and, and you're, you're trying to get them to blend seamlessly so that nobody can tell that they're all different elements. And an example of that is just if, if we were to go out with a camera and shoot somebody against a blue screen and then we want to put them into a background and, and make it look like they're there and all the shadows are correct and all the colors are correct. There's a lot of science that goes into uh, and art that goes into um, making all those things blend together. Uh, and a lot of what we do now, um, because a lot of it is CG imagery, is uh, getting things that were made by a team that just handles like uh, 3D models and get that to work with a team that works with 2D design elements and to merge all those things together to look like they're in the same sort of space. Uh, and that's kind of what compositing is to make all these kind of disparate elements look like they're they've come together in the same space. Yeah, well, that's awesome. It sounds like right now you're kind of uh, a second set of eyes for all these people who are staring at screens all day and maybe, you know, uh, it's, it'd be easy to miss something. And sure. so having somebody to watch their back, that sounds good. Um, I imagine that in this chat, we'll probably talk more about the the compositing side of things if that's okay just because sure. um i know that a lot of my students have like expressed interest in animation and and things like that would it would it be ina inaccurate to call you an animator or is that yeah is it in the same realm what i'll try to do at some point through, as we talk is to show some samples of work that i've done in the past um and a lot of what I left college uh, wanting to do and what I did in the first few years after college was, is to be an animator uh, and uh, worked with a whole bunch of different companies on a whole bunch of different kinds of animation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and some of what was interesting for me over time was that I eventually focused on what I found the most satisfying and what engaged all these different parts of me, both as a creative uh, person who's coming up with kind of harebrained um, ideas for animation and then also as a problem solver who you know has some attraction to uh fixes and a little bit of math and a little bit of um uh trickery which is kind of what compositing boils down to is is merging a bunch of things together so that they look like they were in one place there's a little magic to that even for me still so um so yeah animation was certainly what i started out doing uh, character animation um, you know, uh, um, animation for business clients who wanted text to look beautifully floating through the screen. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'll show you some of that, how that looked for me uh, a few years after college, uh, if I get a chance to show you. Yeah, we'd love to see some some visuals at some point, uh, if you'll okay. be willing to share. Sure. What, did, what did you go to school for? I went to school um, at two different schools. I started out at New York University for a year and my major there was uh, film and animation. And um, so that's a mix uh, with a, a sort of a split major like that. And so mm -hmm. you learn cameras and you mm -hmm. learn how to work on a crew and, and how to uh, you know, record sound when you're on, on location or how to 
um, processed the film um, and you learned a whole bunch of film history. And at the same time, I had a second track that was animation and some animation history, but it was also uh, technique illustration and um, uh, a lot of the, the sort of evolution that, that came through Disney animators and, and some of the stuff that's in some of their books. And so that was my year at NYU. And then I transferred, uh, my family had moved to Florida. So I kind of went with them and transferred to a smaller film school, which had, which had a very similar structure, uh, less established, but uh, it, it worked out okay. And so we, we studied film and film history and I worked on camera crews and, and did stuff with other students. But then in the animation studio, uh, I learned technique from an old Sesame Street animator. And um, so it sat at a, at a light box and, and, and illustrated for most of my projects. And then um, eventually computers, this was um, 91, 92. So computers were becoming bigger and bigger then. And we, a few of my classes then got into computer animation. Um, so it was, it was a mix of, of a bunch of different things. And I think I come, I've come to really appreciate that mix because it exposed me to a whole bunch of different medium. Yeah. Media. That's, that's, uh, that's amazing. So, um, can you, can you tell us a little bit about what, uh, I think we've done several chats with like, um, more traditional artists, like, you know, people who paint and draw and things like that. And they've shared their experiences with art school and kind of what that's like. And I, I have a pretty good grasp on what that's like. And I feel like they're, they've kind of, you know, uh, had a good grasp on what that's like, but what is, what is animation school like? Like, is it, <laughs> um, I, can you tell us like what your experience was like at school and, and what it was like to learn that stuff? I'll tell you. Yeah. I mean, the experience of school uh, coming from both New York university and then, um, university of central Florida, which is, was the other school I ended up in, um, in New York university film has been there for so long that you're in a building that's just all different aspects of film. So you, the people that you meet every day and the students that you meet are so diverse in their skill set and their interests. So some of my friends were art directors, uh, studying art direction for the stage, and you would go into their dorm just to hang out and they have blueprints all over their desk. And it's so different from what you do as an animator that it's it's wildly appealing and they're fascinated by what you're doing. And it's, so you're, you, you find that you're rubbing elbows every day with, with other students who uh, are fascinated by what you do and, and likewise, which is, which is great when it comes to leaving school because you're all when you when you hear th that there's a job opening and somebody's like oh I need an art director you're like well I know this guy who's amazing and when when you kind of amaze each other you tend to refer each other for jobs so this is one of the biggest um, benefits of having gone to New York University is that I met so many people who were amazed by what I did and I was amazed by what they did that we all referred each other into jobs which is about half of how your jobs come to you after college. Um, so that was great. Um, other departments there were film history and um, photography. These were all in the same building. So, so that was a really interesting and focused way to um, be in that school. And they had um, some notable film historians and animators who were teaching. And um, getting that perspective was great. And there were the 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 studio, like like many schools, is open twenty four hours. So you would end up at all hours of the night working on your project because that's when it, when you had time and you would you know bond with other animators who were there other students who were there um so that was great uh that was a an experience of, of getting to know people of different skill sets and everybody very very devoted um classes are 
I mean, though, I remember there were some lectures on technique and then you have, a, you know, some lab time allotted, which you, you use that lab time and then a whole bunch more time after that to practice what you're doing and uh, work on your projects. It's all very project-based. Usually there's four or five projects per semester um, and growing, growing in difficulty or, or just wildly different from one another. So I ended up doing uh, just traditionally animated projects on, on paper and pencil and then some on cell and then some with cutout collages and then some with uh, computers. So there was a whole bunch of diversity there. Um, the experience of going to school in Florida was different because um, we were in with the art department instead of the, um, this very specific film discipline. So um, a lot of what our, uh, um, our emphasis, again, the studios were open 24 hours. Um, and so you were there all, all crazy hours working on your projects. But I think um, we, when you were going to classes and meeting other people, you ended up meeting uh, artists who were uh, much, much, I'd say um, uh, they, they were doing things like pottery and they were doing things like traditional uh, mediums and the overlap was less uh, because of the way the department, our, our department was kind of stuck onto the art department. So you, you met fewer people who maybe overlapped your skill set and interests, but mm -hmm. you did get exposed to a quite a bit of, of diverse sort of um, media that way. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that school too was still evolving in its program. So the computer animation classes were way across campus and that made lab time a little weirder. And I ended up staying up late, <laughs> uh, working crazier hours because uh, of the lack of access, I think, and, and how not integrated those things were. So. But again, the same thing as, as New York in that you get a, a lecture for a couple of hours about technique and then you're allotted like three hours of lab time that you have to complete um, in the week maybe and you end up doing 12 or 20 hours of, of work instead. But, um, but everybody's very passionate and in both programs, everybody's so passionate about what they do that you all end up doing it because it's, um, it's just where you wanna spend your time and this is where your friends end up there at three in the morning with you as well, so. Yeah. The NYU experience kind of sounds like uh, art school in a way, except just like a film version of that, because yeah. I, I know like an art school, you might be a painter, but you're going to be in a lot of classes with graphic designers and ceramicists and stuff like that. So it kind of yeah opens your uh, like influence um, palette a little bit, which is kind of fun. And it sounds like you had that kind of experience, but in like the film filmmaking realm sort of but right well and it's one one of the interesting things about it um some of some high schoolers are are uh, do have some exposure to uh what they're interested in and and so for me i i for a couple months worked at a television station and i was able to just kind of experience it and kind of rule it out and be like okay this is a little intense doing tv news <clears throat> but once you get to college i'm, I'm going to pick up on what you said there and you go to college knowing you want to do this this art thing and maybe you've picked a major but once you get there and you're exposed to all these other medium um, uh, media and different artists and their level of enthusiasm it, it can change your course for sure it can make you think oh i never thought of that or i never thought of this uh for me i went to nyu thinking okay we'll film right i'm going to be a director or some kind of art director and then and had an interest in animation but never thought oh i could study that and once I got there, everybody was so nice in that department and everybody was so inviting and generous that I gradually switched my major uh, from film to film slash animation, which was a welcome change for me. But I didn't know it was out there until I, I kind of got 
into that department. I knew you could do, you don't have to be a Disney animator. You can do all this independent animation that was coming out of New York and, and everybody there was very encouraging. So that was a great experience too. It, well, I can tell you, you're not alone in that because, sorry about the bell. Um, you're not alone because pretty much every artist we've talked to has gone to, it seems like they've gone to school for one thing and then like you said, just kind of been exposed to other things and shifted gears a little bit and maybe not done something completely different, but um, usually it seems like they didn't even realize what they, what they're doing was an option. And so that's cool. Um, do you, for what you do, is it pretty much uh, like a, a requirement to go to school for it? Or are there, do you work with animators and people that are, are more self-taught? There's both for sure. And, and it's, it, it's evolved and, and I'm so careful not to um, assume that my experience of college 20 years ago is what, what everybody else's will be. Um, a lot of the programs, I, I think I looked into the university of central Florida where, where I graduated and lately they have dual tracks of being on campus and using the equipment on campus and a second track equally legitimate where you're using your own gear and you're working outside of the school, but you're submitting your work with them and, and attending lectures. But it, that production, is done with your own gear because maybe you already have gear. Maybe you're you're 17 and you've already done some things for YouTube or you've done some projects with your friends. Um, so self-taught, I'll tell you, uh, I think it has a lot of, of credibility uh, and um, it can be done with people who take a great interest and utilize um, not only the internet for learning, but other experts. Uh, mm -hmm. And finding people who are willing to spend the time to uh, explain some some theory and principle and, and give you the chance to work on it. That would be great. Um, without those things, self-taught can be a little meandering. And what happens, we've worked with a few self-taught artists at PlayStation. And the best situation is that they come on and they're quickly mentored by somebody on the team. If the team is too busy or isn't set up for mentoring, uh, a self-taught person sometimes uh, can struggle with the teamwork aspect and the uh, industry standards aspect because coming from um, some of the film work that I've done, we have a way of putting things together uh, so that if you are out sick for one day, somebody else can open your project and, and see how everything is structured. There's no mystery, there's no shortcuts. Mm -hmm. uh, Self-taught artists may or may not have that uh, level of discipline that they, they can get from working uh, in, a, in established studios or going to school and, and having um, some of that exposure. So that's, a, that's an important part of being self-taught is to expose yourself to some traditional ways of structuring things. Um, but they also have a ton of uh, tricks and, and shortcuts that actually can save time when pressure mounts on a project. When we have short turnarounds, it's sometimes our self-taught people who are the quickest to adapt and have the, the, the best solutions. So I wanna, I, there, there's something really uh, good about both, I think. I remember I taught for a little while at School of Visual Arts. Uh, I taught After Effects animation and I had, um, I had both kinds of students. I had very disciplined students who uh, understood the need for methodical project structure. And I had students who were, maybe their work came in just a little later, but it was, it was really smart and, and well-designed but maybe they didn't have the same steps that the others did. And I was really careful about the feedback I gave, which was, you know, you, you may be procrastinating a little or maybe uh, sprinting at the end of a project deadline would probably work really well in some studios, uh, professional studios. They would see you almost like a hero. 
it's tougher for you to work with a team and it's tough for you to work with a, a slower process. Um, so there's, there's pros and cons to both. Yeah, I definitely think, yeah, one, one path might not be the, the correct path, but, um, it, it kind of reminds me, we've talked before about how you can, if you, if you start work at like a, um, in a team environment like that, like the, the they can teach you to be better at animation, but they can't always teach you to be better with people. And, and we've talked about that with other art forms and stuff, but um, so sometimes I think that's a, that's a good, uh, maybe a, a benefit, a pro of, of the college environment is you're kind of used to working with other people. Maybe. True. And, and receiving critiques and, yeah. um, and taking a hard look at your, your work and saying, yeah, you're right. I can improve it. I think one of the, <clears throat> the anecdotes that I'm sure you've heard in different forms is, is that there are some pottery instructors who make you really agonize over your first project and then they make you smash it uh, once the mm -hmm. project is approved to show you that the next time you do it, you, you'll bring so much more to it than the, uh, the preciousness that you brought to the one thing. And that is kind of what it's like to work on a team because you get critiques all the time uh, that don't really agree with your sensibility and learning to kind of roll with that and see from another person's perspective can be really helpful. Yeah. Well, you just talked about two things. I want to go off on a couple of just short tangents real quick, and then I want to open it up for questions just because I'm, I could ask questions all day, but uh, <laughs> we got it. We had a class full of students that probably have some questions too. But one thing um, is you mentioned how you, were, you went to school kind of in the early nineties, maybe how, yeah. how do you keep up with um, I mean, technology since the early nineties till now, it's like, even in a year, in a year's time, the amount of technology change and uh, it's just so rapid. How do you keep up with um, all the changes in technology? Like, do you, are you just constantly like researching and learning or how, how do you keep up with that? Uh, I think there are two ways that I've done it over time. I think early on when I was an artist uh, who was under a, a, a supervisor who relied on me to solve those problems. I did research constantly. I would bring uh, manuals home. Uh, I would, when I was working in New York, I would read them on the train back and forth from Manhattan. Um, and so I was trying to keep up on filters, uh, you, know, you know, we call them filters, but, but, but um, different tools, right? You, you just keep learning different tools and every time a new one comes to the market, you hear about it or you, you keep up with it and then you, download the demo and you test it out and you try to think of how it would work for your team because that responsibility felt like it was really on me. This other way that I do it now, I work with like three other guys uh, who are super experienced and have a very similar background as me as I break up the research so that each of us takes a different aspect of research and then we get back together and we talk about it and demonstrate it for one another so that we don't have to have uh, an overwhelming uh, working knowledge of everything that's out there. We can have somebody distill it for us and, and tell us about what's relevant. One of the things with a lot of these computer tools is that <clears throat> tools like Maya uh, or Nuke, some of these uh, high-end things, they're so deep that if you don't boil it down to what is relevant to you on this project or you at this job, you can get completely lost in, in all the minutia of what this thing can do. Um, so for example, when I uh, we have artists who use Maya from everything from taking an industrial design CAD document and turning it into a, a, a model of a PlayStation. And he's amazing at that. I, for, I open, my work doesn't involve Maya as much. So I'll open Maya now and then and take his animated camera and pull it out and use it in, in Nuke where, where I'm working. Um, that's all I need to know. And so me and the other three guys who, who need to know that piece, 
we've become experts at that one thing, but we don't need to know all of Maya. So knowing the relevance of these enormous overwhelming tools and how you're gonna use it is tremendous. Like Maya right now, you know, an animator will use Maya to do a character animation, but he has, he knows nothing about lighting necessarily or, or the textures that go on to the characters at costumes. And there's people who just specialize in that. So relevance is a big deal, especially now that software has gotten so broad uh, and um, you don't have to keep up with everything, but you need to know what's important to you for the project or for the, the job that you're getting into. That's awesome. It sounds like you have experts sort of in, in each little kind of corner of these things. Well, the other question that I was going to ask, and you sort of just uh, touched on it a little bit some more, but can you tell us like what, what's your, what does your toolbox look like? Like when you, when you sit down and you're doing the compositing work or you're doing animation work, like what all is involved? You have a computer or multiple computers, I would imagine. And then what programs just because I'm completely animation illiterate. Oh, sure. Um, from, from my day, I mean, I'm, I'm mostly working in Nuke, which is a, a very high-end version of something like After Effects or, or even photo. You can even think of Photoshop as a, as a, a non-animated version of Nuke, but it helps you to layer things together. Um, so I use that most of the day. And then I, um, the other people on my team, we also use After Effects. I've actually been using After Effects a lot lately to uh, layer things together. And we both use, Ma we use Maya. We have two small teams. One uses Maya to do 3D objects and the other uses Cinema 4D to do uh, design elements that are done in 3D that are less precise. Um, so those are the, the things that we use the most. Those for uh, Nuke and After Effects on the compositing side and on the 3D side, Cinema 4D and Maya. Um, and th that's, those are the primary tools. I have one computer now that I'm working from home, but it's not too different from where I was at the office. I have one really high-end machine uh, under the desk and two monitors, one that's color corrected so I can, I can check things before they go out to broadcast or the YouTube or whatever. And then uh, what we have is something called a render farm. This is something that might be, if you get into computer graphics, you'll hit it, this issue as you get into college. There's 20, well, anywhere from 20 to 50 computers sitting uh, on campus, all connected together. And when you render 100 frames of animation, um, one frame goes to each computer. Over the course of a couple hours, the thing's finished. But uh, it makes it much faster than trying to put all of the rendering onto one computer. Rendering is where you've, you know, when we work at home, we're setting things up, setting up an animation path, setting up a lighting change uh, or a, a crossfade. And it's very slow to, to make your computer play through that and see it in real time at 60 frames per second. So what you need to do before you can view it is to get all of those um, heavy calculations to, to get kind of compressed down into one layer instead of lots of working parts. And that's called rendering. And so we do that on a render farm, which takes, you know, like I said, those 40 computers will take um, our project file, go through all 100 frames, make sure all of them look right. And then when you're done, you have, 100 image files instead of, you know, the the raw working project that you started. Interesting. I I'm familiar with rendering, but it's more in like a, a still image kind of rendering. So I'm sure. sure it's a lot more involved with the the video stuff. Well, Steve, I want to open it up real quick for student questions and see if they have any. If that's okay. Yeah, that'd be great. I can repeat it if you can. Okay. Um, so for people who aren't currently in College or 
I was actually going to ask you this question, but I didn't want to monopolize the time. Uh, but she says, uh, I don't know how much you heard of that, but she said, uh, for anybody in high school who maybe is interested in animation, what are some, what, like, do you have any resources that they can be kind of learning about it? What kind of things do you think they should maybe be doing now that way, you know, if they get into that after high school, it'll kind of make it easier. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think that, um, I, I think that there's a couple ways to look at it. Uh, if you, if you're interested in character animation and, uh, things that have to do with, um, you know, Disney movies or commercials or, or animated characters or, or even the new sort of artificial intelligence, um, characters that you're seeing on YouTube. Um, there are books out there. There's really like general books that are great to start with uh, to learn some of the craft of animation and see whether uh, it interests you. Uh, the Disney books are are still uh, the 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 humongous one. The the, the uh, art of animation, I think it's called. That that's the one that's still kind of the the, the standard in terms of uh, how to gr get a character to emote and act. So if that acting aspect is part of it, I would start with some of the Disney books. And then there's some illustration technique books that are that are cheap, that are out there. You can pick up a, a bunch of those. Um, and just to see how uh, they've, they uh, do character design and how they, they, um, they do the design aspects of animation uh, and char character animation. So that's character stuff I would, I would leave in that realm. Uh, uh, and I would avoid some of the technical stuff to begin with because it, it, it can be a little discouraging to read all of the requirements to get a character to work in, in cinema or in Maya. So I would avoid some of the technical stuff and just stick with some of the, the books about animation character and acting. If what you're interested in is just kind of like really cool graphics, um, then I think that there's tons of sort of YouTube videos uh, on, um, on ways that you can start to use things like Cinema 4D or, or After Effects to get um, some really basic projects together. Uh, and, I, and I've had even like friends and relatives who've come to me and just are interested in that. And like, how can I make this cooler? And how can I, how can I do a zoom in on this, this, this thing that I made? And, and that stuff you can start to just sort of mess around with, with um, software that you might uh, get uh, and, and watch some YouTube videos. On that. And that's a great way to get exposure to both the character animation thing through some books and, and tutorials. And then the motion graphics aspect, which is, which is more like the kind of commercial design and, and some of the, the more graphic elements that are less about acting and character and more about uh, following like a crazy arrow or energy beam through a, a landscape or something, something that's more special effects driven. Uh, those I would tinker with because that can be, for those kinds of people that can be exciting. Um, but the, and then a lot of your design aspects that you're learning at school are gonna apply to motion graphics. I guess, I don't know if you're familiar, I'm dividing these things into a couple of different categories that we use in the business, which is, you know, character animation for what I've described. And motion graphics is a lot of the design work that goes into making a really cool commercial or a really cool website or a really cool title sequence. Uh, and those are those artists are considered motion graphics. They may not know character animation at all, but they know how to make a really cool set of um, uh, things flying around a screen that land in a logo or that, uh, that just in, do a title, any really cool title sequence you see on Netflix or HBO is, is done by a motion graphics animator. Cool. We had another question here. So I was watching a video the other day. It was talking about creativity 
and how uh, they say uh, creativity is a part of an artist's job. But we, but when we go and we uh, put into real world application, we look at it from other uh, like job titles. Like a plumber doesn't get like creative block because there's always going to be like one that needs to like the day on goal that is there creative block in the field of animation or when they give you projects they usually have a clear goal and that's what you're trying to work to there's not as much like creativity building to art into this moment if you understand did you get all that steve <clears throat> i think if i understand the question it's um how much creativity is built into this process and uh it sounds like there's some question about um not only whether or not is it built into this process, how much opportunity do you get, but maybe how do you overcome uh, creative blocks or challenges? Is that yeah, right? yeah, both of those things. <clears throat> so the most pure form of creativity in, in my uh, history, both with the animation, visual effects, and now corporate uh, marketing, is what's called a pitch, where the client or the supervisor doesn't know what they want. And so they will often... Um, They'll, they'll ask all the artists on the team to come up with a, a pitch. And it's where you completely create something out of scratch or you maybe expand an idea that the company has seen before. And you show that to the supervisor or the stakeholder client and uh, see what they think. And often those are yes or no things. And we've had it where we present 12 artists worth of work. Everybody presents their stuff and they pick two. And so those are the most creative things. They're not always rewarding if you don't get picked, but they are completely what we call blue sky. Like anything could happen. Uh, you might put something out there that challenges the client. That's not quite what they've seen before. So there are opportunities for this. Um, now that I'm in corporate stuff, I can tell you there's a lot of branding. You know, my PlayStation stuff has to look like other PlayStation stuff. So, so there's a little less of that. But I and I didn't bring it today. But I was going to bring you a pitch that I did. Um, the Tokyo office was like, we need something we've never seen before for this uh, trade show. And we're going to put on a big screen while people are walking around the convention center. And like I said, 12 of us all pitched ideas and three of us got picked. And one of, one was mine. And it was just this crazy, you know, I don't do this, but it was just like a bunch of origami paper folding in an animated way and coming into the Sony logo. Um, and they picked it. And then I was like, how am I going to do this? I have no idea. And so it was a real, I had to hire some stop motion animators to, to roll my paper and, and shoot it for me. So um, those are those creative moments. And they in the corporate world, they come like twice a year, three times a year. Uh, there's small creative things that you do on every little project um, at the beginning where you set the, the team in the right direction. And you, can, you, you do what's called um, proof of concept, where you do a couple frames or a couple small tests. And that, that can be very creative. Or you do storyboards. Uh, and all the, those are the moments in, in the corporate marketing world where you get that. In the visual effects world, when you're working on movies, that those opportunities still come where um, the client, which might be Disney in some cases, has come to us and said, we don't know how Thor, uh, how Thor's um, tree of knowledge is going to look. Can you show us a bunch of variations? And so we did all these things, little particles moving around and forming into uh, sculptures and uh, like, a, like a really advanced computer. Um, so that was a pitch for them, and I, I think that we did uh, we did some for the um, for the Avengers movie as well. There was a, there's the blue scepter, and we had to show what that crystal might look like when it gets really angry. 
so we had to pitch a couple ideas in that way. So we, we a few of us collaborated on that. So there, there's moments. They're usually the beginning of a project. Um, and how to get over the block? We use uh, a creative morgue, um, a design morgue. So ideas that might not have worked last month or got rejected last month, you keep them um, and you revive them. And that really worked out well for me. I did a constellation thing for Sony four years ago, five years ago, where uh, a bunch of stars turned into the PlayStation logo and nobody liked it and I was crushed and I just kept it. And then when um, we did an E3, which is the big gaming convention about three years ago, and I revived it, changed it so that it, instead of the Sony logo, it turned into like some game, a game scene. All the stars kind of came together and made a character and they loved it. And it changed the course of the whole campaign and all the artists had to do constellations after my pitch got accepted. So, so the, the design work is the biggest way to overcome the high pressure creative things uh, in a group where you've got a, a ready supply. And sometimes we, we have an online you know, catalog that we keep locally of all the stuff that failed because you can revive it and tweak it and change the color or collaborate with somebody else. And it, it looks great uh, once it's revived. I love all of that that you just said. Uh, two, two big nuggets of uh, wisdom that I picked up was uh, always pitch your good idea and you can always figure out how to do it later. I think that's a great, <laughs> a great aspect. Oh, uh, what have I done? I'm sorry. Well, I, th I think that's like sure. something that holds people back from like, uh, you know, they have an idea, but they don't know how they're going to do it. So they just yeah. don't do it, but you can always kind of figure out a way to do it. And then the other thing was um, don't trash your bad ideas because you're, or not bad ideas, but a bad idea for one thing might be a great idea for something else. And, you know, keeping those things around, you'll probably find a way to use it later. That's absolutely great stuff. My yeah. humble, my, my thing that I picked up on that is how to humble brag about working on the Avengers. <laughs> Exactly. Did yeah. I did I mention Avengers? Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of that, if you do, you want to show some uh, some visual stuff of uh, if you have some examples or things like that. I can. Yeah. Uh, let me. Um, there we go. I think I have it here. <clears throat> what I wanted to show with this too, if I can manage to share my screen, sure. is the the sort of the evolution because right after college, I was doing a lot of business graphics, even though I had trained as a character animator. <clears throat> A lot of what I had done uh, in school was not really coming through in my first few years of work. Um, I continued to hope for a character animation job, but I ended up doing a lot of business graphics, which paid the bills, gave me a lot of experience, made a lot of great connections. And um, so, but I want to show you that too. It's not all Avengers all the time. Uh, let me see if I can share my screen. I don't know if it'll play back, so maybe I'll do a test first. Okay. Uh, to see whether you getting any smooth playback. You see the group, the key on a green? Yeah, all right, let me play for a second and you, you let me know if if it's smooth. Is it choppy or smooth? It's pretty choppy. Okay, uh, all right. Yeah. <clears throat> I'll kind of, kind of step through it a little slowly with the arrow key here. So these kinds of things here are what the first five years looked like. It was a, like a lot of on and off um, business graphics. Every now and then I'd get something character animated related for a website that I was building or something. Uh, but I worked for, you know, a company that was training pilots was one of my first jobs. And so I do do graphics to train these pilots. And then another one was this where uh, you're just, this was just for General Electric and they were um, just retraining their employees uh, with different kinds of lessons. 
Um, eventually, I got into more computer animation uh, and character animation. So this was the Miller Light logo turned into a boxer who's punching the uh, this bottle like it's a body bag. Um, Not for you, kids. <laughs> Miller Light. Um, and then this is a collage project, collage that was animated that we, uh, me and another uh, animator, she was the director and I was the assistant <clears throat> for Coca-Cola Japan. And it was, we worked with a, a collage artist who did these great 2D collages that we scanned. Um, and so that was a really weird one. Uh, it, was, it was a weird kind of character animation, but also because it was so different, the problem solving aspect that uh, I also enjoy in this business came into play. Like, how are we gonna do this? Like, it's logistically, it's never been done. How do we make a collage that kind of ripples uh, where some parts update and some don't? Um, I did, I got some pure character animation work from Sesame Street uh, where we were, a whole bunch of artists were each just assigned, you know, parts of a kid's game. And we would uh, animate, I'm animating a beaver back there uh, who's eating a log. And this is, I animated Bert and, uh, and the king here playing ping pong. So those I just did at home. That was a really weird job uh, 20 something years ago where I was just sitting at home working full time as a character animator and uploading my stuff to the Sesame Street, um, you know, CD-ROM headquarters. And I never, I went in like once a month. It was very much like uh, how life is now. So yeah, and then uh, I got more and more character animation. Probably now this is um, about seven, eight years out of college. It was a mix, right? I was doing some business graphics and then I would get uh, two or three months worth of this kind of work for commercials where I'm, I'm an illustrator in a studio of illustrators and we're all doing toilet paper commercials and animating these characters. Um, and that felt really much more like what I wanted to do. Uh, this is another one for Saturday Night Live. They used to take, uh, this is a comedian who's just going through his monologue and they're kind of making fun of him. Like nobody wants to listen to him. So these dogs are getting rid of him. And now he's down with the devil who eventually gets rid of him too, because he's tired of listening to him. But I, I worked on backgrounds for this. Uh, I helped with some in-between animation. Um, as pure as this stuff was compared to what I wanted, you know, this is what I want to do from, from the time I started college uh, and switched to the animation major. The studio was such a, a group of experts that when you're new to that studio, the first few months, sometimes even years, are just doing assistant work. So cleaning up somebody's sketch, uh, tightening up the background images, doing in-between work between the uh, what they call the keyframes uh, that the character's poses are in. And that was, it's okay, it's a mix, right? It's sort of like you're getting to do what you wanted with the kind of people you wanted, but the day-to-day -day work might not be, like one of the students had mentioned, as creative as you had hoped. Um, but it was still fun. It was a crazy fun experience. Um, this is some commercial work I did at another studio here, once I moved from New York to California, um, we were promoting like Monday Night Football. And this was not my design, but I had to execute it. And, and <laughs> funny, when we talked before about like when you pitch an idea and somebody buys into it, you're like, how am I gonna do this? Somebody else pitched this idea and then gave it to me and said, you figure out how to do it. And it was, it was grueling uh, doing, it, doing all these tiny bits of footage on strings. Um, it was really tough anyway. We did it. Okay. And then um, while I was still in New York, I worked on a TV show called Celebrity Deathmatch back in the 90s. And, and I've got a couple samples here of uh, ways that we took stop motion puppets and put them in these crazy environments that in this case was supposed to be a Matrix parody or a Tron parody. Um, 
And uh, this one was a, a lot more creative and problem solving stuff mixed together because again, some this you would get a storyboard uh, and the only people who had signed off on it were the director and the writers. Nobody knew whether it was technically feasible to do. So you had to really estimate and think about, can I do this? How am I gonna do this? So there's a ton of problem solving in special effects work uh, that went into this. Um, this is sort of um, a Ghostbusters parody where we're turning one of the Chris Catan into a ghost and Bill Murray's trying to zap him. Uh, so we had to match the kind of effects you might see in Ghostbusters. And again, problem solving, like how are we gonna do this? And tons of testing, tons of stuff getting rejected as you work through the first few days of the production. Um, once I got out of TV and, uh, and uh, character animation, I was moving more into visual effects. I leveraged a lot of what I was doing at MTV uh, on Celebrity Deathmatch into uh, a West Coast career doing just really specializing in visual effects. So this is a comedy Will Ferrell thing where a lot of it spent in cars driving. Um, and my job was to supervise a team of people and, and also get involved in making it look like they're actually driving cars. The, the two of them are just sitting on a blue screen stage making jokes back and forth with um, Adam McKay, the, the director writer, feeding them lines to try on each other, to make each other laugh. And we had to put all the backgrounds in and, and make sure the reflections look right and, all, and haze it out so it's a little bright to look like, look like photography. You have to like look at maybe bad photography and compare it. Uh, it's kind of funny if I can interrupt you for a second sure. too. It, it's funny because it, some of the work that you've shown us, it's like your, your work is the thing that people are looking at. And you want it to really look good so that people, I guess, are impressed by what they see. But then that example, and it like it sounds like a lot of the compositing stuff, your job is to almost not be noticed right. in those instances. It's like the, the more that people don't notice your work and just think it's right. uh, stuff going by the car, the better. And so it's kind of funny that you're, you have that balance of like, uh, you know, things being seen and things being not seen. Anyway, continue. Right, and that's a good point. No, within visual effects, that's a good point. Like when I was doing uh, the effects for Celebrity Deathmatch, there was a lot of special effects design, which is actually a job. Like there are special effects designers who don't necessarily execute the work, but handle the pitch and handle all the alternates and they get the approval and then they give it to somebody else to execute. Um, and I've met those guys, it's a great job. Um, and so those are definitely the things they design backgrounds for, for, for a big scenic in a movie. Uh, they design how, you know, five different ways a creature might look or five different ways is the energy that he zaps people with might look. That is a great job. Uh, and that's where people are looking right at the work. And as you go into compositing, like you said, like these driving shots, nobody's gonna, I, I can barely explain these to my family when I, when I try to tell them what I do. I'm like, oh, you know, it's kids on a blue screen and I had to make sure the light passed through her, the hairs of, on her head in yeah. a realistic way. And you have to know a little bit about optics and, and how cameras work for that to happen. So well, if your family can tell that you've done all that stuff, you probably they never know. Job well, yeah. So even with my wife, I have to squeeze her hand when my shots come up in a movie if we're sitting in the theater because it's how would she ever know? Um, <laughs> so this is um, Spiderwick Chronicles, and so we were given some um, computer-generated renders of these creatures and then a live-action background, uh, and you have to match the two up. And often the creatures are too black, and you have to lift the blacks a little bit to look like they belong in a dusty environment. Um, similar to this, I got, had a lot of creature work where this is a monster uh, chasing these kids and you have to change a lot of the black levels and uh, the shadows and all the intensity to make him look like he belongs. And that's a lot of the compositor's work. And this is the magic sleight of hand 
aspect to it is making it look like it's real. And sometimes you add a little water droplets or smoke or camera shake or something to make it look like what's happening is real. Um, I'm gonna go through any questions, but I'm gonna go through some step-by-step -step breakdowns of things if there's time. Uh, it should take about five minutes. Got any, got any questions? I think, yeah, I think they're excited to see this. Cool, okay. So this is Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Um, this is the final, how the final shot looked. Uh, her hair catches on fire. Her chest plate kind of catches. Uh, let me see if I can move this thing. Chest plate lights up with a lava effect. Um, and so what you're gonna see is how she was shot originally on a green screen and none of those effects are present. But what we did, you'll see the elements here. This is the background that I got from the 3D team and the effects team who did snow and, and these creatures running over the hill. Really hard to see with this compressed version I know. So this is a, I was in charge of particles for her hair. Um, and so I did this one layer of like these particles that don't look like fire on their own, but they do have the intensity and the movement that we needed. And it followed her hair because I could make the computer follow her hair. So then we took some real fire, some footage of real fire that looks just completely wrong as you look at it here. Uh, and you can see that it's curling in a weird organic way. It's It's got a more recognizable fire look, but it's not contoured to her head. So when you layer that with the particles that I put together uh, and do some color correction to everything, you get this overall effect of this fire explosion coming out of her hair. And it's a combination of the two things. And the trickery obviously is knowing what works and what doesn't. And you can see her chest plate lit up as well. So this is part of what was appealing to me as a compositor is like knowing what I could kind of um, combine together to get the effect that I wanted. This is a scene from Sky Captain where the plane is being chased down the street and past the Flatiron Building in New York. Um, this was a really weird, I don't know if I'll ever have this chance again, or I, and I hope some of you will have a chance like this. I was hired uh, and everybody was too busy to supervise me because they had a big deadline coming up and they were just like, Steve's the new guy, just give him the Flatiron Building scene and leave him alone for a month. They left me alone for a month. Uh, but this is what they gave me. They gave me photography of New York City and they gave me the airplanes and they wanted it to look like that final look of this retro kind of uh, building. So I had to erase everything from modern New York and paint in parts that got erased. Uh, and then I went to the Library of Congress website on my own and pulled down all these historic billboards and details, streetlights and things like that, and Photoshopped them in. And then we had a whole bunch of panicking people on blue screen. And I put those in with some, some uh, these are cars from photographs. These aren't even CG. These are just things I pulled from the Library of Congress and just moved them slightly like cars in traffic. And all those things together uh, give you this sense that um, and some fake shadows give you this sense that uh, these things might be all happening in the same scene. Um, this You're is like, I need to be the new guy so people will leave me alone more often. It'll never happen for you this way. <laughs> you know, any place you get hired, they're going to just be over your shoulder three times a day. So the idea that they were just too stressed to supervise me, don't count on that, guys. That's not going to be the way it is. Um, this is Pirates 2, um, Pirates of the Caribbean 2, and the water is a piece of live action footage that was not quite big enough. And so I had to go in, I, I had to combine three things here, the live action of the actors, the water that was just shot separately, and I had to build it out so that it was much bigger, just copy it over and over again. And there's a miniature that 
is the bottom of this boat that, that wasn't on set. You'll see here as I break it down. So that's some water I created. If you look close enough, you'll see repeating waves, but I'm not going to let you do that. That is the miniature, I believe. And that is the boat that the actors are holding on to. Um, so there's the miniature over the boat and they're completely the wrong color. So a lot of the work that I was doing was making sure the actor's edges look good over the water and getting the two parts of the boat to kind of match up color wise. This is again, another miniature for Pirates 2. There's Johnny Depp or his double walking out in the desert. Uh, and then I added the miniature boat in there and color corrected it and added a fake shadow on the ground to make it look like it was all together. And the shadow had to match the actor who was out in the salt flats. So that was kind of the work of that one, uh, getting all the movements to match. This is a lot of the day-to-day at -day PlayStation is doing videos like this that promote new hardware uh, and have a glossy background. And so again, this is one where as a corporate marketing department and, and making sure that our branding is consistent over the course of, the, of a couple of years of promotion, you have to make sure the blues are the same. You have to make sure the color of the light's the same. Literally the reflection of the PlayStation symbol on the middle of the console has to look the same every time we roll it out. It has to be a diagonal. It has to feather just a little bit. It has to cover a certain amount of the PlayStation. So this is how different it is to work in a, a marketing and a corporate environment for standards. Some of our stuff has to pass through Tokyo before it's approved. Uh, this is a more creative thing that we did for PlayStation where we had a lot the opposite, right? We could do whatever we wanted. We were promoting Uncharted 2, or the, sorry, the Uncharted 4 um, new console. And so we got to build this, this uh, pirate castle environment uh, and uh, five or six of us collaborated on it and made it look really cool and Indiana Jonesy. And um, then the corporate part kind of comes in at the end. Uh, they were very open to whatever we wanted to make this cave look like. But when you see the console, it has to look exactly to their specs. All the blues have to be perfect. All the golds have to be perfect. Um, but it's sort of a funny mix of creativity, uh, blue sky sort of um, problem solving and creativity and then branding uh, for a corporate client. That is my little clip presentation. Any questions uh, as you see some of this stuff? A lot of it's very different from each other. That was really cool to see the, I like all the composite, seeing all the pieces and then seeing how it was all put together is cool. Uh, does anybody else have a question? Yeah, Victor's got another question. We're gonna, we're gonna okay. let him go. This doesn't really pertain to your work, but uh, does it get kind of frustrating when like a new movie's coming out and then you see that you're working on the movie and you don't get to go and like experience it? Part? Um, I, I heard the, uh, I didn't hear the end part, but I heard like when a new movie's coming out and then what was the rest of the question after that? Does it get frustrating like if you're anticipating the movie? Does it get like frustrating when you need to work on a project and you're like, you get like part of the movie spoiled? Oh, does it, okay, yeah. Uh, does it, d when you are seeing that a movie that you're working on is coming out, but you've already been kind of given this one piece of the movie and it might spoil the movie, does it, does it get frustrating? <laughs> oh yeah, uh, that is really frustrating. That's a great question with movies because a lot of people in movies are fans. Uh, someone had mentioned plumbing before and plumbers uh, don't do it because they love plumbing uh, and they get to go home and enjoy movies. So yeah, everyone you work with in the movie business and, and a lot of these passionate businesses uh, are huge fans of the history of, of, of movies and, and what's coming out. And uh, it absolutely can spoil it. Um, I've seen movies in a three hour rough cut 
and I think it's a great movie. And then when it comes out, it's it's an hour and forty five minutes, and all of the heart has been cut out of the movie because they made oh. need to make it two hours. Super Eight was was a good movie until they edited it down. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's um, that can be frustrating. Um, and there's also the possibility that you finish the work, the director on a conference call loves your work, and then they cut it at the last minute. I've, I've had it where I go into theaters and my work doesn't show up. Um, while I'm sitting there with family friends, and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Heartbreaking. That. Yeah, so it can be, there's lots of ways that movies can break your heart, uh, but that is definitely one of them, is, is either you, it spoiled the ending or you show up in the theater and, and either you don't get a credit uh, or you, it, they cut your shot out altogether. Okay, I'm gonna ask the, op- the opposite question, which is when you're done with the movie, um, are you able to enjoy, I mean, obviously you can enjoy most of the movie because you might only have worked on parts of it, but the scene that you worked on, are you able to sit back and enjoy it as a spectator of the movie or are you constantly like, oh, I should have you know, done this or this? Absolutely, or, no, you agonize. Fun. You totally agonize. You're watching the movie and if, if you, you just beat yourself up for the, hopefully your effect comes at the end of the movie. So you just beat yourself up for 10 minutes afterwards. But if your stuff mm-hmm. comes at the beginning, you beat yourself up for the full hour and a half in the dark. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and as the sweat dries on your body after you've seen your shot, for sure, it's 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 agonizing. Well, that's I think that's being a fan. I think that's part of being a fan and, and putting your heart and soul into it. Um, there's a little now that I'm doing corporate work. There's a little distance. Like if we cut, catch a problem uh, during the PS5 rollout uh, when we showed it that it was a white thing, and maybe somebody said, "Oh, there was a, a glitch there, something flash." We're like, eh, "That's okay." <laughs> you know what I mean? We can we can live with it. So yeah. It sounds like what you're saying is work on movies that excite you and that are that are fun, but maybe don't work on your favorite movie <laughs> or like right. a sequel to your favorite movie so <laughs> that you can enjoy it. <laughs> that might be the that might boy. What kind of that, that's a mixed message. I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> I think just build some resilience and still work on the movies you enjoy. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, we got another uh, student question. Sure. Working on a team, how how do you deal with working with other people as an animator? And yeah, how do you navigate talking? How do you navigate talking to people while you're working to make your work personal relationship better? Well, I think there's two aspects to that answer. Uh, when it comes to the people you, that you depend on in the workplace, so if it's your supervisor or your your coworkers who maybe, uh, animation's a great example because there's a background artist, there's a colorist, there's the um, supervising animator who does the keyframes, and then there's the in-betweener, which I, I, I've done a few of those different roles. Um, so when it comes to work dependency, there's a lot of, um, the best way to keep the relationship good, especially under pressure, is to ask a lot of questions. Um, even if you think you know the answer, the best approach to somebody who's <clears throat> supervising you or dependent, uh, or you're dependent on in the workplace is to, even if you think you know the answer, you ask a question first, uh, because it shows some deference and maybe opens you up to the possibility that you don't quite understand what they're going for. And they feel like they can kind of rely on you uh, and trust you if they if you're asking those questions 
the right kinds of questions. So that that's just in terms of workplace etiquette, I think uh, always asking questions first is the best approach. Um, and in time, trust builds and you can make assumptions, but not at first. Uh, as far as like people on your same level, colleagues, that is a challenge. And I will tell you that working on the Saturday Night Live stuff in a studio, I had a I was in a room with four animators, super nice people, but one of them just would not stop talking while we were working. And he would just tell the same stories over and over again. He was, he was just, it was like, uh, I don't know, I can't think of a character, but he just wouldn't stop talking. And our solution was to get books on tape and play them during the day. Cause as much as he loved telling stories, he loved hearing them more. And he would just be like, guys, quiet down. I want to hear how this plays out. So we just played books on tape for months so that he would just continue to work quietly so we could all get our animation done. Um, being around other animators, you know, be generous with how you uh, talk about one another's work. When something's great, tell them it's great. Um, you know, when you're confused about something, ask them what they're, what, what, were, you, what, were, you, what were you hoping to do with this? <laughs> Instead of like saying, this doesn't work. It takes a while to get that relationship where you can go, hey, this doesn't work. Um, but I think sounds like a good uh, a good thing to do, no matter what you're in, whether it's <laughs> yeah. animation or another art form, or yeah. even just like a business, you know, sure, uh, job or something. But yeah, always be generous with your with your uh, compliments when you believe something's good. Agreed. Um, well, Steve, these guys leave us in like nine minutes. Do you care if I just ask you a couple of speed round questions? Let's do it. Yeah, it can be like an, a sentence long if you want. Um, what's what's the favorite most enjoyable project that you can remember working on just off the top of your head uh this, uh i think celebrity deathmatch was probably my favorite the team got very close we worked a lot of hours and we had to solve a lot of crazy problems that were on the storyboards together in a very collaborative way and everybody this was maybe a three-year run on this show um we got to where we trusted each other and we could say things like eh, that doesn't work mm -hmm. and we wouldn't take it personally or if we did we'd work it out and it, you know, uh, we got real resilient with one another. And that is a group that I miss. And I think they miss the group too. I talk to them even now it's what, 20 years, 15 years later. And they just, the first thing they say is, ah, oh, I miss that job so much. So yeah, that, that was fun. Where it was a lot of problem solving, a lot of freedom and just a lot of laughing in the room that we were working. There were no cell, there were no uh, smartphones at the time. We all had to hear each other's phone conversations. If my mom would call, everybody heard me talking to my mom uh, in the room. And so they would just, just tease me to death about it me to them about their yeah. phone calls too or they'd get books on tape so <laughs> we should have them. yeah we should have uh okay what's a dream project for you to work on like what was what's something you'd love to work on in the future if you could do anything i think what's really what's happening with youtube is really interesting i think content creators and people who are coming up with things that are uh their own and very much their own vision like when you go into a restaurant and it's filled with doilies and ceramic cats you're like okay this is somebody's dream uh but in a good way uh, youtubers and i think uh, I'm, I'm messing around in in the rec room on on the playstation now to build little virtual reality environments for me and my friends to mess around in and that is, it's so personal. Like you, you, because it's user created, you get these real love letters to whatever they're a fan of, whether it's a movie or whether it's a, a riding on a train. I just did a VR thing with some friends the other day. We were all riding on a train through Japan and we were like, this is amazing, who thought of this? So all that very personal stuff that you're seeing in the, the self-made medias out there, media medium out there are really cool. Uh, I think I'd like to build, um, 
I'm because I'm drifting into virtual reality. I think I'd like to build a, a cooperative level where uh, me and my friends are or have to depend on each other to, to get through a, a challenge. I think that that's what I'm aspiring to lately. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, last question. These guys are uh, teenagers. If you could go back to 16 or 17 year old Steve and give yourself one piece of advice to help you on your animation and compositing path, what would you what would you tell yourself? Why does this, this is about speed round. <laughs> this is like, this is deep stuff. Um, uh, we can, well, we can uh, do a part two someday and we can really we'll do a part two. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that um, it's tough to know a good thing when you have it, but I should have stuck it out at NYU probably. I should have, because that group of people were some of the more nurturing uh, people that I've, I've worked with just personality wise. They were just great mm -hmm. to each other. Um, uh, and, uh, and to me, so, um, weighing the alternative, you know, pros and cons list, should I take this opportunity or that opportunity? Uh, it's good to agonize over that. It's good to do the pros and cons list, ask around, get other people's opinions. Uh, if you're not sure, I, th I think those little turning points in, in, uh, a career path, sometimes you don't recognize it when they're happening. Uh, mm -hmm. so asking around, getting different perspectives, I think makes a difference. Very cool. Well, Steve, this has been super fun. I, I actually learned a lot and uh, I know that these guys probably learned a lot too. Um, and it was, is that a question? Is that a hand? One more, one more quick question. They're about to leave us. But, oh. What, oh, what's your dog's name? They want to know what kind of dog you have and what its name is. Okay, he's a golden doodle. He's 25 pounds, he's a mini and his name is Noodle. So he's Noodle the Golden Doodle. And I own that <laughs> .com already, noodlethegoldendoodle.com. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but someday. Uh, that'll be, that domain will be worth a lot of money. So <laughs> hang on to it. Um, well, thank you, Steve, for taking, you know, an hour out of your day. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. And I, I hope that uh, it gets the wheels turning. Uh, and, sure. You know, get out there and get some exposure. One of the, you guys have this opportunity with YouTube and the internet to, to see lots of little uh, niche jobs within an industry that uh, was, was much tougher for me to do 20 years ago. I, I had to like, be there to figure out uh, what the jobs were at a tv station or whatever so you take advantage of that opportunity it's great good to hear yeah and animation is something that we just don't talk about a lot uh we don't really have a program for it here so it's really cool to hear all that stuff so we yeah appreciate it hope you have a great year and you know things get back to somewhat normal soon <laughs> if you want them to get back to normal <laughs> yeah thank you for that yeah i look forward to it all right we'll see you thanks, later everyone. thanks great bye. talking bye Thank you so much to Steve Jaworski. It's easy to take those things we see in movies and TV for granted, and it's kind of cool to be reminded that there are people behind the magic that happens, and also glimpse how that magic happens. Are you inspired to go try some animation of your own? I hope so. Go do it. As always, thank you for listening. If you have any questions or have artist suggestions for this podcast, you can email at schsvisualart at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram at schsvisualart. Until next time, keep creating.